Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about the Supreme Court and democracy. This month, in line with the upcoming end of the Supreme Court's term, we'll talk about the courts as protectors of democracy, judicial philosophy and constitutional interpretation, the authority and power of the court, checks and balances, and the peril of the court becoming or being perceived as political. This show was pre-recorded on June 13th, so send your comments to news at weru.org. We're not taking comments on the air. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guest, Richard Pildes. Rick is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law and at New York University School of Law. Rick was also a member of the 2021 Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Welcome, Rick, and thank you for joining us. Very glad to be here, Anne. Marin Sorensen is Assistant Professor of Government in the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. We're so pleased to have you, Marin. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So let's get started. Um, we're expecting decisions that, you know, pretty soon here on abortion, guns, EPA, religion, schools. You know, some of these are uh, bound to be quite con controversial. There's been a lot of hand wringing about them. In the meantime, the Ash Center at Harvard just released a report that says the Supreme Court is now further to the ide ideological right than most other Americans. This contradicts the long-held belief that the Supreme Court has been and always will be a majoritarian institution, that the court's decisions generally reflect the values of national majorities, and that deep structural forces constrain the court from departing too far from those preferences. Rick, this is a topic that you've written on, and you've taken issue with that view that the court is structurally majoritarian. Why do you think so or not? Well, I'm glad we're starting with that uh, question. So uh, about 10 to 15 years ago, there was uh, this big flourishing of literature, actually by academics as well as some public commentators, uh, arguing that the court was essentially reflective of the majority view of the country that it tended to, to kind of gravitate in that direction. Um, and in fact, some of the people pushing this view argued that the court was more reflective of majoritarian opinion than um, other institutions at the time, including Congress. The idea behind this view, which I do take issue with, is that there are various mechanisms that check the court and push back on the court's tendency uh, to get too far away from majoritarian opinion. Uh, and I think that that might well be true in a very long-term perspective. Eventually, the court will be brought back closer to majority opinion if it gets too far uh, away from that. But but that's in a that can be in a very long term. It, it can take quite a while to get there. Uh, and the reason I was critical of this view at the time, and and by the way, I I've been thinking I should write a piece now saying, does anyone still believe the court is a majoritarian institution? Because I think 
that position is obviously hard to sustain today. But the reason I was um, skeptical about that view is that uh, how is it that the court is supposedly pushed towards reflecting majoritarian opinion? One mechanism is through the appointments process, which is a political process, and therefore um, those appointments will reflect the current electoral and political dynamics of the country to an extent. But the problem is that the way our system works, appointments don't come up in any regular fashion. Uh, in, in one presidential term, like President Trump's term, a, a president might get three appointments. Um, in other uh, presidential terms, uh, like Jimmy Carter's term, four-year term, no appointments. And so there's a high degree of randomness that's not connected to anything directly uh, about majoritarian opinion or departures from majoritarian opinion. There's just a high degree of randomness of when these seats come open um, and what the political constellation is at that particular moment. And then since justices serve so much longer now than they used to serve, um, the average tenure uh, was about 15 years up until 1970 or so. Since then, it's been about 27 years. Since justices serve so much longer, whatever the political constellation at the time of their appointment, you know, that might be 30 years back in the rearview mirror. So that's one thing, that mechanism that supposedly constrains the court to reflect majoritarian opinions is a very erratic uh, kind of mechanism. The second thing is, uh, the people who do this work look historically, uh, and they see other periods of time where there was political pushback against the court when the court did get too far away from majoritarian opinion. But the, the mechanisms that uh, had been used at some points in the past for that are, really aren't used very much anymore and haven't been for a long, long time. So Congress can take away jurisdiction from the Supreme Court over certain um, issues. And Congress has done that at certain points in the past, but it hasn't done that for many, many decades. Congress could threaten to expand the size of the court um, in, in response to political uh, uh, pressures or views that the court has gotten too far away from majoritarian opinion. Franklin Roosevelt tried to do that, but the effort failed. Um, and ever since then, um, the view has been that that had been off the table uh, as something that was even discussed politically. Um, now it's come back onto the table a bit. There's certainly been you know pressure um, in that direction um, uh, in, in recent years, but you know it hasn't amounted um, to all that much yet. And given how divided the country is, given how polarized Congress is, given the filibuster. Um, it's just not that realistic uh, a threat, at least uh, at the moment. So now, by the way, let's just put to the side the question. The court shouldn't be an institution that just in some way reflects majoritarian opinion. That's what our political institutions are for. But there is this view that has been out there that, that the court um, won't get too far away from majoritarian views on major political and cultural issues of the day. As I say, I was skeptical about that view a decade ago when I first wrote as a skeptic about it. And I think under the current circumstances, um, you know, that skepticism seems to me to be warranted. Marin, I'd like to give you a chance to comment. And then we sort of see if we are to believe the reports, we see um, just Chief Justice Roberts sort of struggling to sort of bring the court back into 
I mean, he seems to be fighting for the respect of the institution. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure he's winning. What do you think about the majoritarian and the confidence in the court and that whole suite of questions? Yeah, so um, to, to Rick's first point about the appointment process, I, I want to add a few things. And one is that, um, you know, pointing out that presidents don't have any regularity with which they're able to appoint, especially Supreme Court justices. Um, I, I wouldn't quite frame it, though, as random because of um, strategic retirements. So certainly death is random um, or random and uh, unpredictable enough. Um, but uh, there's a literature out there uh, that retirements can be incentivized through financial motivations. So, for example, in 1984, uh, the Reagan administration got passed a new um, sort of retirement uh, package for the federal judiciary, and 40 percent of the federal judiciary retired. And then uh, Reagan had Senate control uh, with Republicans to be able to, I mean, certainly not have a, a completely smooth appointment process to replace those. But um, the same goes with uh, Supreme Court vacancies in at least the modern era. Um, we know that Kennedy was certainly talked to about, uh, you know, his potential replacement being Kavanaugh and that being something that might incentivize him to retire. Uh, and so there's this and Breyer actually talked openly about having somebody nominated and confirmed as a contingency of his uh, retirement. So there isn't full randomness to it. And this incentiveness, incentivizing the uh, retirement and vacancy process is done politically. And I want to just say that. So it actually compounds the problems that Rick was talking about. The second through appointments is that, um, you know, the Senate has right now malapportionment problems where you have rural red states uh, that have, you know, populations uh, that are certainly lower than your blue states. So you have uh, a sort of Senate is not majoritarian either. Um, so you have this this compounding of these issues where we have a politicized vacancy process for judicial uh, you know, nominees at, at the federal judiciary level, level, and we have a non-majoritarian Senate that's going to be in charge of the confirmation process. As to the historical checks and and the um, what the actual constraint might be if we try to conceptualize this this court as a majoritarian uh, sort of institution. There has been some research in political science that's developed a, a little bit since since Rick uh, wrote his article that um, finds the court responding to certain constraints. So there's a couple articles that demonstrate that the court does, in fact, kind of track with public opinion using something called the stims and mood measure, which is a sort of aggregate measure that looks at um, liberal attitudes towards domestic policies. And that if you look on average at the year level, the court does sort of trend with that. And as public mood is more liberal, uh, there are more liberal court decisions. Now, one very important, very important caveat to that finding is, is that it seems to hold only in non-salient cases. Which oh. would mean why does yeah why does it even really matter then? 
Uh, there are a couple other scholars that have tried to model or have modeled individual justice votes and demonstrated that as an individual justice is further out of line with a popular public outcome, that justice uh, is more likely to change his or her vote and vote counter attitudinally. There's some findings also that as the court is further outside the legislative equilibrium or is furthest from the nearest branch of the government. Uh, and they tested this with all the different types of pivots. So the uh, even using a filibuster pivot, uh, as the court is further away, it is less likely to invalidate um, friendly pieces of legislation. But these, I, I think, I'll do align fairly well, though, with Rick, what Rick said, is that these are sort of broad and there's certainly just ways that the court has responded rather than the court acknowledging and being a true majoritarian institution. There's a Tom Clark book about Let responding me. to actual court curbing threats, um, but it is this sort of soft response rather than direct, uh, I would say, responses. Well, and the, the, the confirmation votes have become more partisan in the last 20 years than they than they ever were before isn't isn't that true again and this is also tracked with declining trust in american institutions in general so like the court because of that is being perceived as more partisan than it was before and what effect is that having on public confidence in the court so that's to you rick well i think there are a lot of things going on there so um it's not surprising, given how intensely polarized the country, the parties, Congress is, that a lot of other institutions are getting swept up into that vortex. Um, part of the way that works is um, the commentary on the court is incredibly polarized these days. Um, and so most of the big salient kinds of decisions are convey to the public, which of course doesn't actually read these decisions, um, through these highly partisan filters. So, so that's one uh, aspect of, of the dynamic here. Um, second, <clears throat> secondly, these things are all kind of interactive, but as the confirmation process has become more polarized and more partisan, that inevitably reflects back on the court. And third, we now, for the first time, do have a court where on a lot of the most salient issues of the day that the court decides, we are having much more consistent patterns of justices appointed by presidents of one party voting one way, justices appointed by presidents of the other party voting the other way. Um, and we haven't had that historically. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is that because there were justices who, um, who made decisions in ways that surprised uh, their, their presidents or the political coalitions behind their appointments, um, much more attention has been paid to trying to appoint justices, nominate justices who have a, a very clear track record in advance of where they're going to come out uh, and who, for various reasons, look less likely to be prone towards significantly changing their positions uh, over time. I mean, the language that was used or one of the ways this was described uh, back, you know, 25 years ago was the, 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 the greenhouse effect, it was called. Linda Greenhouse, 
who covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times, was a very liberal commentator and processed all the court's decisions through a very liberal lens. And that was in an era in which the media wasn't as fragmented. So the way the Times reported on the cases was you know, very important in terms of larger public perceptions. And there was the, the claim made by conservatives that there were certain justices, Justice Blackman was you know, viewed as one of these examples uh, who Richard Nixon had appointed, uh, but who ended up voting with more liberal justices in many of these cases, supposedly because uh, they were looking to be praised and celebrated in, in the, the New, New York, York Times, Times by the Greenhouse. Yeah. Um, and we and, you know, that I, I, I have to think about who the last justice was about whom that might have been said, but it's been a while now uh, because these coalitions, these appointments are so consequential politically. You know, I think that's an unfortunate feature uh, of the way our system has developed, but they're so consequential politically and people serve for so long now and are appointed at younger ages that the process of trying to be certain you know what you're getting and it's going to stay what you think it is uh, when these nominations are made, um, that that process has gotten more accurate, uh, you know, as more and more energy has been devoted to filtering people out for exactly those kinds of reasons. Let's do a quick station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the Supreme Court and Democracy. Our guests are Maren Sorensen, Assistant Professor of Government in the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College, and Richard Pildes, Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law, New York University School of Law. This program was pre-recorded on June 13th. No listener calls are being taken. Um, you know, we're talking about the consequential nature of the decisions that are coming up, and there certainly has been a certain amount of hand, hand-wringing over um, what this court term is going to bring. Um, Marin, what areas of public life could be disrupted if the court does what is considered likely they would do? Is it okay? Can I talk a little bit about confirmations before we move on? So I just have two things to say. Everything that Rick said was great. I just want to add a few things about the confirmation process that have changed. Um, So TV, the, when the hearings became televised, there was a market change in the way that senators behaved. Prior to televised hearings, not even all senators actually used their questioning time. Um, So you Right. The the spotlight effect means that they behave differently. Uh, And then, of course, the failed Bork nomination changed the way that the selection effect happened and also the way that the just or the nominees, they're not yet justices, the nominees behaved in response to questions. So wait, how how did the Bork decision change change that? Because uh, for our listeners, Robert Bork was nominated in 1987 and was um, he, he couldn't be confirmed. Right. He was you know, a pretty conservative, but the thought I think at the time was that he was too far outside median to be confirmed. You tell me, I'm asking the question. Sure. I'll just say that I think that there were some, I don't know that the public thought about him being uh, too far outside the median. I think, I think that the public 
maybe was afraid by some of the comments that he made publicly. So Bork, for example, said that he didn't uh, believe in a, the generalized right of privacy that came uh, from Griswold uh, and in subsequent decisions. And he was very open with sort of answering questions exactly according to what he believed. That is the big change for what you see in the way that nominees respond. So while the nominees have always been forthcoming and talking about their own ideological, or excuse me, not ideological, constitutional philosophy, um, they are now pretty uh, tight-lipped if it comes to the what's commonly referred to as the Ginsburg rule, no forecast, no hints. So talking about potential outcomes. And so there's a, a sort of silence that comes. And as Rick said, what you've got then to go off of is somebody that has a pretty clear record. And that's how people are now being nominated. And the hearings are not producing much information that wasn't already known. I mean, Justice, That's what I'll say about Bork and yeah. Right, and and Rick, I mean, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg was very forthcoming and open in her confirmation. When was that? That was like, was that in the 90s? 93. Yeah, maybe. Nobody does that anymore, right? Well, I think she wasn't... Um, forthcoming in the sense of, of, you know, talking about how she might decide cases that could come before the court. Uh, and in fact, a lot of nominees since then <coughs> have actually referred back to her testimony and said, uh, Justice Justice Ginsburg didn't, you know, comment on these kinds of questions. I'm not going to either. But, I, you know, I don't think the confirmation hearings uh, really reveal very much about how people are going to decide cases. Um, they've, you know, often become efforts to find some something to derail a nominee, but um, I don't think they're very revealing about constitutional philosophy in a meaningful way. On the, on the other hand, it's often it's it, it's it's not really much of a mystery these days either uh, how most of the nominees in recent years are likely to approach uh, cases. So. Um, Following up on uh, Marin's comment, it might be we get the worst of both worlds. We get these public spectacles with all the senators wanting to hold forth and damage opposing nominees and help politicize the process without actually getting meaningful information from the process. Um, and a lot of people have written about how to try to reform the process to make it better. Uh, Justice Kagan, when she was a, a, a law professor, had actually written on this herself. Uh, but of course, when she testified, she um, did uh, what all nominees do, which is being you know, very um, cautious or careful not to actually speak about issues that might come before the, uh, the court. But then coming back to this question and thinking about the decisions that lie ahead, I mean, these could be pretty consequential. I mean, does that make the court pretty powerful if they can really upset the apple cart in the way that, that some think it might. Has, has the court always been this powerful to really turn our public policy around that way, Marin? Or come back to you, Rick. I see you getting ready. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to say, you know, Rick wrote about this in his article. Um, so I think he... Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are a lot of ways of, of sort of of coming at that question. There was a time when the court did not view itself 
uh, as uh, as strong an institution, um, and where it had more uncertainty about whether other parts of the government would actually back it up. So um, people forget that um, what makes court decisions stick, the court itself doesn't really enforce its decisions. Um, it requires other parts of the government uh, to enforce the decisions if, if people are not going to comply. So remember, you know, after the desegregation decisions, uh, President Eisenhower, for example, who did what I think dis either disagreed with the decisions or wasn't so keen on the court having entered into this area, nonetheless sent federal troops uh, to help desegregate uh, certain public institutions, educational institutions in the South. That's how those decisions were enforced. They also were enforced by Congress in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, then coming into the picture and denying federal funding to schools that didn't comply with the desegregation orders. So the court relies on or depends upon both public opinion kind of supporting what it does um, and other parts of the government being willing to support it. Um, and one of the markers I use on, on how different uh, the court was uh, on this issue um, in the early 20th century, when massive disenfranchisement of black voters had taken place in the South, despite the 15th Amendment, which uh, supposedly guaranteed uh, non-discrimination on racial grounds with respect to the vote. When that issue was brought to the court, the massive disenfranchisement in the South in the early 20th century, the courts rejected those claims. And one of the things it said, which is kind of shocking to modern ears, is uh, if a majority of the people in the South want this to happen, anything we say would be mere empty words on a, on a form. That changed over time and a sort of a high watermark uh, of, of how legitimate the court is perceived to be and how its decisions stick is when in the Watergate context, when the court ordered President Nixon to turn over the, the tape recordings that he had secretly made in the White House, which he knew would lead to him having to resign or, be, or to be impeached given what was revealed on those tapes, he nonetheless complied with the, the court order. So that's one thing. Over time, the institution has built up a kind of legitimacy or had in public opinion that made it so costly for public officials to defy the court that Nixon would turn over these tapes, even though he knew it would lead to him losing office. That's remarkable. Are you uh, suggesting that's no longer the case, though? I, I am definitely concerned. Um, about whether that will continue to be the case in this highly polarized um, environment. Um, I thought during the Trump um, administration, we might end up with some kind of direct conflict uh, between the court uh, and the White House, but fortunately that did, did not occur. The other thing is that because Congress is so gridlocked and cannot respond to court decisions when they are decisions that in theory, Congress could respond to, like decisions interpreting major federal statutes. Um, that gives the court even more power because its decisions effectively become final, even though in principle, Congress could override those decisions. So to, you know, to tie this back to this term, one of the major issues the court has not yet decided, but is confronting is about the scope of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But, but sort of the larger question behind the case is, 
how much is the court going to constrain federal administrative agencies when they're implementing various statutes to a, a much more narrow uh, scope based on, on what that statute specifically addresses. And many of these statutes are, in fact, quite old. They go back many decades, like the Clean Air Act. We haven't had major modifications to a lot of major federal legislation in decades. And so agencies are sort of the vehicle for updating these policies, if you will, given a polarized and gridlocked Congress. Uh, and the more the court constrains the power of administrative agencies, the more acute that problem becomes. And then just I'll stop here with the third thing. But you know, as the court takes on more and more of the most controversial cultural and social issues of the day, things that the court you know 50 years ago would not have addressed, um, that also has expanded uh, the court's power. So the court takes on much more than it did at certain earlier moments in its history. The court generally has more public support than it did when it was a weaker institution, though we don't know where that's going. And Congress has less ability to respond to court decisions than it, it might have had at certain earlier moments when Congress was less gridlocked all the time. Warren, I, I want to give you a chance to comment on this checks and balances thing. Like, are checks and balances working or? So I want to pick up on one of the things that Rick said about the legislative gridlock. Um, so that's an idea, right? So if, if the court interprets, they engage in statutory interpretation rather than constitutional interpretation, Congress has all the authority in the world to just pass a new law um, because the court has not said it is unconstitutional. It just made an interpretation with which uh, Congress disagrees. So an example of something is Shelby County v. Holder. So this decision uh, struck down the preclearance formula for the Voting Rights Act. And in the opinion, uh, the court said, just write a new formula. Just write a new formula. We're not validating the preclearance procedures. The formula just is based on outdated data. Uh, things are different now. Write a new formula that reflects that. And we don't have a new formula. So um, a significant portion of voting rights cases that have come to the court, many through the shadow docket since 2013, have been a product of Congress being unable to overcome legislative gridlock and pass a new formula for the Voting Rights Act. Who so I think it's from that. Oh, good. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, that's going into a that's unpacking a ton. Um, but I mean, I think at this particular point in time, I would say that Republicans probably benefit from that because by and large, the states that were previously uh, covered under the preclearance formula are states that are controlled by Republican state legislatures who now have a lot of authority to set voting procedures, to change voting laws, to change voting procedures, um, to engage in political gerrymandering, because that's now okay. Partisan gerrymandering, gerrymandering is perfectly fine, the court says. So you can kind of track back to Shelby County v. Holder. There are other cases. Um, Rick talks about Citizens United in his article um, is another one of them where the court has enabled this perpetuation of minority control of uh, governing institutions. Well, that's a good segue yeah. to my next 
topic. So I'm going to do a quick station break and then I'll ask the next question. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Richard Pildes, Settler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law, and Marin Sorensen, Assistant Professor of Government in the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. This program was pre-recorded on June 13th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. Um, so I want to ask about, you know, Bork and originalism and judicial philosophy and the proponents of a sort of a small government private property view of democracy and what it's for. And I mean, I know that's a big question, but let's just start out with what is originalism and how is that represented on the court today? Rick, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. So originalism <clears throat> is um, uh, something that applies to constitutional interpretation, which I should just point out is a small portion of, of what the court actually does. The overwhelming portion of what it does is statutory interpretation, where what we now call, call textualism is, is particularly um, a powerful organizing uh, kind of viewpoint. But um, in the constitutional sphere, originalism is the view that the court should interpret the Constitution according to the way its terms would have been understood by the public at the time it was enacted. And you know, we, we have a hard time squaring that with the evolving interpretation of the Second Amendment. Do you know what I mean? Well, the court, the, the majority that um, held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to uh, a firearm for certain self-protective purposes. And, you know, the scope is, is kind of being partly decided this year. The conservative majority that reached that view would say it was an originalist opinion. Um, that, that's how they defended it. Um, that's how they justified it, I guess I should say. Um, now, that's actually, of course, a very controversial view. Um, and the dissenters descended on various bases, including that this was not a correct originalist uh, understanding, the view being that the right was guaranteed in the context of a militia. And if you were participating in an organized militia, uh, then you had the right to, uh, to bear arms. But, uh, but, but the, 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 the majority that made that case, made that decision, would call it an originalist decision. And evolving interpretations of the Constitution, sometimes this is called living constitutionalism, sometimes it goes under other terms, uh, tends to be the sort of alternative view. Um, although there are lots of ways of talking about the alternative view. But for example, one of the places this makes a difference is the court often uh, has decided some issue of constitutional interpretation many decades ago, and then it has a whole series of precedents that continue to build on each other. Um, and that's one way in which the interpretation evolves over time. Um, there are originalists on the court, um, Justice Thomas is the, the, the sort of best example of this, uh, who believe we shouldn't pay attention to that whole line of precedent if the original decision was wrong as an originalist matter. We should restore the correct original understanding of the Constitution. So in other words, uh, one way of understanding the alternative to originalism is this precedent-based system of reasoning, um, much like common law courts have always done. You know, we decided these issues under the First Amendment, this is protected, this isn't. 
now we'll reason from that starting point, not from uh, what the original understanding might have been. Assuming we can actually under, you know, get access to what the original understanding was. So on some provisions, there is a pretty clear original understanding, uh, but on many provisions, um, there isn't one way or the other. Um, and so the idea that originalism could, even if was in, even if one was inclined to endorse it, the idea that originalism could give you an answer to all questions of constitutional meaning is not always correct, because there are many questions that um, uh, weren't thought about one way or the other. There wasn't, uh, there's not much to go on one way or the other. I mean, what you were just talking about, and Marin, maybe you'd weigh in on this, like, that business about a precedent-based understanding, that's a little bit kind of what's going on now is that the current justices are looking at the original cases and deciding they were not correctly decided on an originalist basis then and throwing out all the intervening precedent. Could you just educate us a little bit on that? Sure. Are you referring to the uh, Dobbs draft? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that Alito's, I mean, I think it's 70 pages and another 28 pages of appendices for the Dobbs draft, the leaked Dobbs draft. Yeah, he, he creates a framework where fundamental rights are either rights that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights themselves or are, have this sort of rich history and tradition um, and are part of an ordered, you know, ordered concept of liberty. And this is the framework. And then he uses that framework to talk about, in the context of Dobbs, the right to abortion. And he uses it then to invalidate the right to abortion. The Yes, and he says that it was wrong when it was decided. Roe and Casey were wrong when they were decided. Uh, they you know, weren't grounded in this originalist perspective. Um, and there's a lot of different ideas placed. So he talks about the notion of stare decisis or adherence to precedent. Um, Adherence to precedent is considered uh, sort of a legal principle in uh, fostering frameworks and legal consistency, not only for the legal community, but for Americans living their lives. So stare decisis is generally valued in the legal community, but uh, I think they rely upon a quote. Is it from Justice O'Connor in Agostini, where she says that uh, stare decisis is not an inexorable command, and it's at its weakest when we're interpreting the Constitution? So they push back against this idea that stare decisis is really any sort of a a controlling factor in the first place. And secondly, of course, it's not controlling when the original decisions are wrong. So Dobbs does set up this framework and to uh, the draft opinion. I want to be really clear that this is a draft opinion. Uh, Dobbs sets up a framework that could potentially be um, dangerous. Now, while Alito is explicit in saying that this only applies to abortion because abortion is the only circumstance where another potential life hangs in the balance. His framework itself doesn't make that, you know, separation. So this is uh, some of the reason that people have begun discussing whether or not um, same-sex marriage potentially hangs in the balance, uh, etc. But this is one form of originalist originalism. There's a original meaning 
There's uh, textualism often sort of falls in that. But one thing I also want to highlight is in the wake of the leaked draft, historians kind of went to town on the way he used history. So, um, and Rick mentioned this, is that it is you know, not often that there is a, a singular accepted clear meaning of parts of the Constitution. And that's clear generally and not clear. That's often true for many parts of history as well. So you, it is, I think, a, a leap to say that just because you can establish facts means that everybody would frame those facts in the same way. So originalism, I think, also suffers from that as a as a particular problem. But that's not to say that any other judicial and constitutional philosophy doesn't suffer problems also. I mean, every every potential way of interpreting the Constitution suffers from, you know, uh, individual fallacies of motivated reasoning, um, suffers from difficulty in having a universal method that you can apply across all types of scenarios uh, with new facts and new technologies that, you know, were, were not even conceivable when the Constitution was drafted. You know, can I just make one point here that um, doesn't typically get into these public discussions on, on regionalism? There are there are some constitutional scholars who view themselves as liberals who also view themselves as originalists. I'm not sure whether all originalists would agree with, with their self-description, but um, Jack Balkin, for example, at Yale Law School has written a book called something like uh, Living Originalism, or that's part of the title. Um, and, you know, he, he says, I'm an originalist. But let's take something like the Equal Protection Clause, which guarantees in the 14th Amendment, no state shall deny equal protection of the laws to any person. So uh, on Balkan's view, and he's not alone on this by any means, um, the original understanding was, was a commitment to equal treatment. But what that means is still to be elaborated over time, and they understood it was to be elaborated over time. Um, and so you can uh, be an originalist, you know, he says, with this commitment to this understanding of the Constitution, uh, with an evolving understanding of what equality or equal protection might mean, and that's consistent with originalism. Um, and there are other constitutional scholars, uh, Akhil Amar is another one, um, who, who also view themselves as originalists. Uh, so originalism doesn't have to support results that would be politically characterized as conservative, though in practice, you know, it has tended to to be that way, at least up till up till now. I mean, what is the role of the courts in the context of this interpretation? And I, I mean, I'm reflecting a little bit that there was a time when somebody could serve on the Supreme Court without actually being a lawyer. Um, but you know, what is the evolving role of the court, not only in interpreting the Constitution, but also in defending democracy, like reaching conclusions that protect a democratic system as a whole. And I think of um, Citizens United, for example, which, you know, probably had its basis in the Constitution and in law, but has been disastrous for our political system. Well, I have a case book called The Law of Democracy. Uh, and so uh, I'm in the camp of scholars who believe uh, that 
uh, maybe the most important role for the court uh, is to protect the democratic process uh, against the inevitable risk that those who temporarily hold power will try to entrench themselves or their partisan allies in power more deeply. And that had become a major role for the court since the 1950s or so. It was not a role for the court before then, but the court gradually took on this role really starting in a major way in the 1960s and, and viewed this as a quintessential part of its justification. Uh, why do we have a, a, a court applying the written constitution to protect individual rights that the constitution identifies, but to protect the democratic process itself so that um, the outcomes of that process can be viewed as, as sort of legitimate in some very large uh, sense. Um, and in fact, I was part of the legal team representing Common Cause before the United States Supreme Court, challenging partisan gerrymandering um, and trying to get the court to apply the Constitution in a way to constrain partisan gerrymandering, because that's a very good example of political insiders who temporarily hold power, seeking to entrench themselves in power more deeply if they have control of the redistricting process. Um, and so I was very uh, disappointed uh, that the court said in a five to four decision, this is not a role for the federal courts. I think that you know, many people view the court as having, uh, as, as playing less of a role in protecting the democratic process uh, from uh, manipulations by uh, existing office holders than the court might've played 25 uh, or 30 years ago. And I do think that's, when we talk about what is the, the theory of judicial review, what is the purpose, what is the justification, uh, I think developing the law of democracy is, is you know, one of the central purposes for the court. And I do think the court today sees itself less uh, through that lens than it has at certain points in the past. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Richard Pildes, Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law, and Marin Sorensen, Assistant Professor of Government in the Department of Government at Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. Our topic today is the Supreme Court and Democracy. This show was pre-recorded. You can send comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. So Marin, uh, do you want to weigh in on that Supreme Court and democracy question? Like if they're not here to protect democracy, large uh, dem democratic system overall, what values are they defending? Uh, so I... To go back uh, just a little bit, I, I think, and this again touches on some things that uh, Rick mentioned earlier, the court has almost unilateral control over its docket. Uh, and that is something that uh, changed over the 20th century. Congress can mandate uh, as a right of appeal, certain classes of cases that the court is required to hear, um, but then also they can exclude certain classes of cases out of the court's appellate jurisdiction. They haven't done that. Uh, but the uh, court almost has unilateral control over its docket. So it, it's not to say that they haven't adjudicated some of these claims, um, but they have, I think, even shifted quite quickly in the way that they described and conceptualized their role. And I think a good example is thinking of the troika of cases from McConnell v. FEC 
um, Citizens United to McCutcheon BFEC. Uh, because in McConnell, and this was, I think, the first challenge to BICRA, the Bipa Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, the court conceptualized this, this notion of um, reforming campaign finance as warding off, and, and they, they upheld it as constitutional at that point in time. And at that point, thought about what was Congress trying to do? Congress was trying to um, sort of protect democracy by um, limiting even the perception of corruption amongst elected officials. And so this is okay. Uh, and then we have quite quickly a uh, move from Citizens United that the court is not interested in any sort of like anti-distortion effects that money can have it, to McCutcheon VFEC, where the court basically says the only type of corruption we're interested in is quid pro quo corruption, where it's clear that there is vote trading happening. And we don't consider any sort of um, influence over access or influence over legislative agenda to be corruption or an appearance of corruption that would guide our decision making. Um, so I think that switch happened fairly quickly. Um, and the court has continued to adjudicate cases. I mean, I guess maybe in um, Rucho v. Common Cause, they I mean, they said that the partisan gerrymandering is non-justiciable. So they're now sort of out of that realm of, um, of claims, but they, they hear cases about the Voting Rights Act. They hear cases that relate to voter ID. They hear different cases about democracy. They just seem to be allowing states to sort of engage in writing legislation how the states are going to write the legislation. Right. I don't know if Rick would agree with that or. Well, this might take us a little bit of field, but I, I do want to actually make this point because um, I'm sure it um, uh, will surprise many of the people listening. So the McCain-Feingold law or BICRA, the campaign finance law, the first one we had had since the 1970s that was enacted in the early 2000s, had effects that I think people don't, uh, don't realize um, and effects they probably don't like. So one of the major things that law did was it, it, it strongly limited the amount of money that could go to the political parties. And the result of that was the rise of all of this outside money in politics. And people tend to associate that with Citizens United, which was um, about eight years or so, seven years later. But actually there was a several thousand percent increase in outside money going into elections after the enactment of McCain-Feingold. And at the time, there were political scientists telling reformers, this is going to be a mistake, because as much as you might not like the parties raising huge amounts of money, it's better to have the money with the political parties who are accountable for their ads, accountable for what they do, have control over their messages. Um, and so... I, since you brought this up, I actually, you know, do want to make that point that not everything that's styled a reform necessarily is well thought through. And when we talk about the rise of outside money and all the problems it's created in our elections, we have to talk about McCain-Feingold as, as well as Citizens United, in yeah. my view. I, I don't want to let this show get away with a get away from us without talking about reforms, though. So I'm going to turn to that topic now. I mean, the Ash Center report suggests that Americans don't understand 
what's at stake and that may make reform very difficult. But I want to ask you each, you know, to just summarize a little bit. Is reform needed? What reforms would make sense? Is reform possible? Um, do you want to go first, Maren? Sure. Um, uh, new book by um, Bartels and Johnston, where they, the, the book is called Curbing the Court. And they identify that support for curbing the court um, is directly related to your um, like or dislike of the court outcomes. And that they, they look at broad support for court curbing, which would be larger measures that appear in the, the um, ASH report. And they even then conceptualize narrow court curbing, which would only sort of um, be maybe a, a, a veto override of a specific decision that would be really policy-based. And if you are generally uh, discontented with what the court has been doing, you will support broad reforms. If you are discontented with a, you know, a particular policy area, you will support narrow reforms. And this can be primed through partisan framing. And Rick talked about the way that the media reports. It could be primed through simply partisan, partisan framing of, uh, of a court outcome. Rick, I actually think that's the biggest. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that's the biggest institutional constraint is that it seems like you're only going to have probably uh, one party support ever amongst the population for genuine court curbing. Measures. One at a time. Rick, you served on the commission. What reforms would you tee up if you could? Well, I am very interested in the idea of uh, shifting from life tenure to fixed terms for the justices. And the president's commission on the Supreme Court spends a lot of time analyzing uh, this uh, issue. One of the fascinating things about it is that there is significant bipartisan support uh, for um, shifting to a term of, of fixed years for members of the court. Uh, our Supreme Court is the only court in the world that doesn't have either a mandatory retirement age or a fixed term of office. You know, we have life tenure. And part of what has changed so much about the court, as we talked about earlier, is the justices are getting appointed younger. They are serving many more years because of improvements in public health. The average tenure on the court is now much, much higher than it was even 50 years ago. And there is this random quality with the, with, with the qualifications that Marone, you know, put into that, but it's random quality of when appointments come up and how they relate to the election cycle. So the idea of a fixed term is the justices would serve for 18 years, which is a very long tenure still, which will still preserve judicial independence, which is, you know, an incredibly important value but that the uh, terms would be staggered so that every president in a one year in a in a four year single term of office would have two appointments and those justices would then serve for 18 years as long as they stayed uh, healthy so fixed terms would regularize the appointment process it would eliminate the issue or at least the perception of strategic retirements because there'd be no benefit to retiring early it would encourage presidents to appoint people who are somewhat older, and it would keep the court you know, closer to the electoral dynamics uh, over time rather than being beholden to whatever those dynamics were 40 years earlier when a justice was first uh, appointed. 
There's a debate about whether Congress could impose fixed terms by statute or whether it would have to take a constitutional amendment. And we're at the very early stages of this idea starting to get into public discussion um, a little bit more broadly. Um, but I think it's an idea worth considering very seriously, and, um, and I hope people will you know, start thinking about it more. We are almost out of time, and I do want to give you each just a very a, a few seconds, really, to um, make some parting comments. So, Marin, um, just wrap it up for us, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, I think in summation of the conversation we've had, I'd say that there are certainly uh, some structural constraints to, well, uh, there's not even a structural constraint. There's just not a, a way right now to realistically rein in the court with a 6-3 supermajority. You know, you asked a little bit about, about what we can expect that the, you know, what impacts could happen. It, a lot could happen. A lot could genuinely happen. There's school prayer, there's the abortion question, there's the EPA question. There are a lot of big questions out there that could be decided uh, by a 6-3 conservative supermajority. Um, and there's not a lot that can happen. Is that, I mean, I guess I'm gonna be a little bit negative here, but I think that there's gonna to need to be a sort of seismic shift somewhere, uh, or this is gonna be a sort of long-term trend of the court um, sort of becoming more and more political, being viewed more and more by uh, the American public through a partisan lens and having its uh, decisions challenged more and more often. Rick, just a couple sentences worth is all we've got time for, please. Yes, I, I think the court is a very important institution. We need a court that has broad public um, legitimacy. Uh, I fear we are really entering into a period where that's going to be difficult to sustain. Uh, I think that if we have divided government, it's entirely imaginable no justice will be confirmable to the court. Uh, and that's a very, very bad spot for the court uh, and, and for the country. And it is hard to see uh, how we can dig ourselves out of this dynamic and how much the justices uh, are capable of doing that themselves. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Our guests were Richard Pildes, Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law, and Marin Sorensen, Assistant Professor of Government in the Department of Government and Legal Studies at Bowdoin College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Put Democracy Forum in the subject line. We'll see you here next month. Thank you so much.